Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome back for the uh, next session. Uh, what we're talking about uh, uh, today is next steps in assessing impact, and we have a, uh, a, a glittering panel for you. Junior Lane, who is uh, Senior Managing Economist at the American Institutes of Research and is very famous from her time at uh, National Science Foundation and for her, her pioneering work in developing uh, metrics of science impacts. Uh, Cameron Nylon, who many of you will know, is an uh, advocacy director at the Public Library of Science and is a great uh, blogger and tweeter and friend of the Impact of Social Science Project. Uh, I'm sure he's going to be great. And uh, finally, David Sweeney, who's Mr. Ref, don't all do it once. Uh, he set it all up. It's all his fault. Uh, <laughs> but now he's going to tell us how uh, next time round it will be much better done. Let's hope. And uh, I'm Pat Dunleavy, and I'll be chairing. So I'm going to ask Julia to kick off, and uh, we'll take it away. Okay, well, um, thank you very much for having me. I, uh, as a Kiwi, I'm usually delighted to be in uh, the UK, except uh, when we lose in rugby. <laughs> so I'm pretty bitter about that. Um, it doesn't happen very often, though. Uh, so I, the, the topic is going to be uh, next steps in addressing impact. So I'm a, I'm a social scientist by training. I'm an economist. I, um, as you can see... I have uh, courtesy appointments in the economics department at Strasbourg and at Melbourne. And so, to some extent, my comments are going to be informed by that experience uh, of my training, but they're also going to be informed by having spent four and a half years as program director at the National Science Foundation, where we developed the science of science and innovation policy. And uh, that was very much an interdisciplinary effort, so I worked uh, uh, a great deal with sociologists, anthropologists, um, political scientists, uh, and domain scientists in thinking through how to address one of the key questions, not the only question, but one of the key questions is to how to think about looking at the results of science investments. And so I'm going to start with um, kind of the key ideas that uh, we should be thinking about. First thing is, is as we're thinking about developing an uh, um, impact assessment, the, you, you've got to have a conceptual framework. You've got to have a theory of change. So what precisely do we think we're doing? And uh, what's the process whereby once a funding investment uh, Occurs. what's the process whereby we think the results are going to occur. Um, and, and I'm going to argue that the core unit of analysis isn't documents, um, that science is done by scientists, so it's fundamentally a, a social endeavour. And so we want to capture information on scientists, and by that I mean uh, not just principal investigators, but graduate students, undergraduate students, postdocs, everyone who is engaged in the scientific process. Um, and that the core outcome that we're interested in can be described in many different ways, but it's fundamentally the creation, transmission, and adoption of ideas. So that's what we want to think about. That's our conceptual framework. 
And then what we want to think about is how we're going to measure that. And so there's been a fair bit of discussion that, oh, well, it's very hard to measure the results of science. And, um, you know, it, that is true. It, it, it is a complex, nonlinear process. Uh, but this is the scientific community, I will uh, argue, is the community that put the man on the moon and the, um, mapped the human genome. So they should be able to figure out things like how to describe the results of science. So... Um, the empirical framework that I'm going to suggest to you is one that kind of came out of, very much out of the National Science Foundation framework, uh, but also the White House interagency activity more broadly, which is when Jack Marburger said, you know, we don't have a scientific basis to describe science investments. When, then you step back and you think about, well, how might you do this? Uh, the notion that you would revert to a 1970s approach where people fill out forms and um, uh, you burden the principal investigators with reporting doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And then the other thing is, is uh, and we felt pretty strongly about this, is that uh, the, this is essentially uh, understanding the theory of change. And if you're thinking about um, this as science activity as being primarily a human and social activity, then you want to build an analytical community around it. So you want to have scientists, domain scientists and social scientists, uh, thinking about how to describe the results of science investments, just like you do in, in many other uh, areas of policy, like health policy or um, education policy or workforce policy. We know a fair bit about the way in which interventions work their way through to eventual outputs and outcomes, and uh, build that analytical community of practice. And I'll, I'll say pretty strongly that the bureaucrats who were part of the Science of Science Policy Interagency Group that I co-chaired, the White House Interagency Group, felt very strongly it shouldn't be bureaucrats making the, uh, uh, developing the understanding of what the impacts of investments were. It should be the social science and the domain science community. So build an analytical community. So I'm going to walk through a little bit more of that conceptual framework and then uh, talk through an empirical framework and then give you some examples of how these uh, ideas have been applied. So the conceptual framework, well, how do we think about measuring impact in just about any domain? Uh, and because the World Bank's done a very nice job in the, in the development field, I went over and, and uh, grabbed their impact evaluation and practice, um, so when you talk about impact, what you're really interested in is saying what's the impact of causal effect of a program on the outcome of interest. That's the technical, uh, professional definition of impact. Is a given program affected, effective comparative to the absence of the program? And when it can be implemented in several different ways, which one is the most effective? Right? So core to the notion of measuring impact is the same thing as um, Louis Pasteur with his swan flask. You have um, an experiment, you have uh, a set of activities, and then you introduce contamination or a treatment, and then you compare the results of the treatment relative to the control. So in social science, that's much harder to do than in the domain scientists. Um, because obviously we don't have identical white mice and we don't have identical little molecules that we can look at. Um, so the classical 
uh, challenge in social sciences to identify a counterfactual. So, uh, because we can't, as on the left-hand side, have two cloned people where one person gets an investment and another person doesn't, what you want to do is you want to look at the behaviour of statistically identical comparison groups and you intervene with funding to one group and you compare the uh, activities uh, as a result uh, and then compare those to a, a, a statistically comparable um, non-intervention group. So, of course, this is really hard to do in um, science policy because, you know, investments are, are meant to go to the best. Uh, but that happens in lots of other areas of, you know, health, education, workforce policy. And there are, there are lots of technical way, uh, ways that uh, uh, social scientists have found to work around that. And um, so I just want to put that in front of you. And the first thing that one has to do is to say, okay, what's the theory of change? So in any impact evaluation, uh, in any domain, you've got to write down, okay, how do we think this process works? So we're putting in money, there are a set of activities that are going to be generated, there's a set of outputs and outcomes, write it down. Write down what we think the um, process is. And uh, in essence, what that's saying is move beyond the black box. And, and so this is a pretty famous cartoon. And on the left-hand side, you see uh, a lot of uh, equations. And then in the middle, a miracle occurs. And then you get a result. And uh, the, the guy's saying, I think you need to be a little bit more explicit in step two. So what we want to do is we want to say, let's unpack that black box. And let's say what we think the process is by which science investments work their way through to scientific, social, economic, and workforce outcomes. So um, there's a fair bit of literature on this, uh, but there's also a bunch of anecdotal evidence. I was a program director for, uh, as I said, four and a half years. But program directors in general, if they had to write down the way in which they thought funding worked through, they'd say something like this. That first of all, it's not deterministic. There's an error term, which you get with any uh, social science. So what they're interested in on the left-hand side, the Y variable, is uh, creation, transmission, and adoption of ideas, which can happen in many ways. Publications is one, patents is another. The students that are trained is probably one of the most important things that is often not captured. But also uh, doing presentations, you know, just get it, getting a buzz going around a particular research idea and a research agenda. And if you had to write down how they thought that happened, they will say that happens through research networks. So you've got Y equals X beta plus an error term. X is the research networks. And then the, what the funding does is it affects the way in which those research networks are formed, whether, how they survive, how they expand, and so on. And it takes multiple sources of funding and maybe multiple activities um, to generate research networks and to create a set of scientific ideas. It's not like a little slot machine. I don't think any program director will tell you that it's not like a little slot machine where you put money in at one end to a principal investigator and a little sausage goes along for three years and then at the end of that, out pops a publication or an idea. 
That's not the way science works. It's networks of scientists, and it's the communication and transmission of those ideas. So, you know, you could do something quite uh, complex if you go in the literature again and you start to say, well, how does funding R&D work? How does that work its way through the system? You could get very complicated pictures like this, where you get something like fund R&D, perform the research, communicate the results and apply the knowledge, and you've got all the moderating and mediating factors. You'll notice those are all action verbs, by the way. These are people activities, not document activities. And, of course, then you kind of have the reaction of the New Yorker cartoon, oh, if only it were that simple, right? Well, I'm going to argue that you can have a set, a stylized picture for a conceptual framework and that the black box is essentially networks of scientists. And the key science is done by scientists. The key unit of analysis is the people. The funding is the intervention. So what you want to do is you want to look at the uh, results of the funding on groups of researchers and networks of researchers compared to a, a reasonably constructed comparison group. The institutions within they, which they operate matter. It matters um, what kind of institutional structure they have, what access to research infrastructures like genome sequencing machines, large hadron colliders, and so on. And then what you're interested in is the set of products that they produce. And when I say products, it's scientific, variously defined, uh, economic, social, better quality of life or cleaner streams or whatever, and workforce. Who are the students who are trained? Okay? So I'm going to, um, after I saw the part of the presentation this morning, or, or right before lunch, I'm going to give you a three-minute video that kind of gets at those ideas. So I hope you've seen TED videos before. So I want you to think about this in the context of science. So ladies and gentlemen, at TED we talk a lot about leadership and how to make a movement. So let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons from it. First, of course you know, a leader needs the guts to stand out and be ridiculed. <laughs> but what he's doing is so easy to follow. So here's his first follower with a crucial role. He's going to show everyone else how to follow. Now notice that the leader embraces him as an equal. So now it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Now there he is calling to his friends. Now if you notice that the first follower is actually an underestimated form of leadership in itself. It takes guts to stand out like that. The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. <laughs> and here comes the second follower. Now it's not a lone nut, it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and the crowd is news. So a movement must be public. It's important to show not just the leader, but the followers, because you find that new followers emulate the followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, and immediately after, Three more people. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point. Now we've got a movement. <laughs> so notice that as more people join in, it's less risky. So those that were sitting on the fence before now have no reason not to. They won't stand out. They won't be ridiculed. But they will be part of the in crowd if they hurry. So <laughs> over the next minute, you'll see all of the uh, those that prefer to stick with the crowd, because eventually they would be ridiculed for not joining in. 
And that's how you make a movement. But let's recap some lessons from this. So first, if you are the type, like the shirtless dancing guy, that is standing alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals. So it's clearly about the movement, not you. <laughs> okay, but we might have missed the real lesson. Here's the biggest lesson, if you noticed. Did you catch it? Is that leadership is over-glorified. That yes, it was the shirtless guy who was first, and he'll get all the credit, but it was really the first follower that transformed the lone nut into a leader. So as we're told that we should all be leaders, that would be really ineffective. If you really care about starting a movement, have the courage to follow and show others how to follow. And when you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first one to stand up and join in. And what a perfect place to do that, Ted. Thanks. <laughs> so that kind of makes the point that this is what science in many ways is about. It's about getting people to follow your ideas, and that includes your, your graduate student, um, and, uh, and capturing that information in a systematic way. So what might the empirical approach look like? Well, so again, when we started thinking about this as an interagency group charged by Jack Malberger and then subsequently by John Holdren and certainly by both the Bush and the Obama administrations, um, what seemed logical is you leverage existing data. So almost all scientific economic activity occurs electronically, so you may as well want to capture that. And if, we're one, if, we, are intra, if we think that the theory of change is the networks, there's been massive changes in the way in which we can capture information on human interactions. Um, so obviously in, in graph theory we've got uh, massive changes in, in the way in which we can describe networks. The application in both sociology and economics in, in terms of structuring, having structured analysis, used to be when I was a graduate student it was just workers and firms or individuals and, and businesses. Now the unit of analysis it can be social networks. We've got new ways of communicating knowledge. That was a terrific session uh, uh, right before lunch. Um, and the way in which Microsoft and Google and so on structure those data, no longer relational databases, but graph-oriented databases, because as um, uh, the interactions between human beings change, you want to be able to uh, speed up that information. And we've got new types of data. So what I want to argue to you is that the next steps in terms of assessing impact is there's a huge potential here for new science. Uh, that part of what was so exciting about running the CISIP program was the incredible creativity of, uh, of social and domain scientists to try and capture the ferment that is uh, uh, the creation, transmission, and adoption of scientific knowledge. And there's new theoretically grounded rather than ad hoc ways to answer the question of what are the results of science investments. And you don't need to have people fill out electronic form, equivalent of paper. Let me give you some examples um, So to kind of ground this. So one of the things that we were responsible for um, was starting up the Star Metrics program in the United States. So the first thing that we wanted to do was to capture all the people who were supported by science funding. And that turns out to be hard to do. Um, I know it's hard to do here in the UK because I... Um, uh, was part of uh, Dan Atkins' um, review of cyber infrastructures. 
and the principal investigators, when they were asked to provide information on the graduate students, were giving us pieces of paper and Excel spreadsheets, and they, you know, it was just very randomly generated. Turned out to be hard in the United States as well, but fortunately, something came along called the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which said that if, they were, if science agencies were going to get stimulus funds, they had to be able to document who was supported by science funding. This turned out to be a real boon, both because the universities wanted it to document that this is the result of science funding now, immediately, we don't have to wait, but it also created a boon because now what we would be able to do is to describe the networks of project teams for the very first time in a, in a large-scale fashion. So um, Jason Owen Smith, who's a sociologist at the University of Michigan, started to work with the Michigan data. So for the first time, you don't have to look like 10 years later for who's published articles. You can look at the composition of project teams from the, and look at it longitudinally over time. And you can look at it in terms of the connections of what they're working on. So this is a, these, these slides, you'll, uh, anyone who knows University of Michigan will recognize those blue and maize colors. Uh, so these are plagiarized from Jason Owen Smith's presentation. Um, so what he's doing is drilling down and trying to understand more of the sociology of the people who are working in grants on funded projects and because we're able to use natural language processing on the text of the grants, we're able to describe the research that is being done based on the text of the documents without a single principal investigator having to pick up a, a, a pen. So this is an example of the networks um, of, of researchers and their students and their uh, support staff working in a private university without a med school. This is a public university. This private university, by the way, is one of the best in the country. It's got kind of uh, very high impact activities. And when you take a look at the networks, you can see exactly why they're a very connected university. This is a public university also without a med school, but you can see it's much more disconnected. And this is a public university with a med school. So what, uh, and uh, they're very deep, they're very thickly clustered around a, a, a set of NIH-oriented topics rather than NSF topics. So what old Jason did was, you know, now he's using theoretically grounded measures of the interactions between the scientists working on grants and uh, he's developing a sociologist's understanding of uh, what the connections look like. And then what he wants to do, what he's in the throes of doing, this is a project... I funded when I was at the SISIP program, is uh, he's going to link that to, he's interested in spatial uh, relationships, so he's interested in the relationships between um, the economic geography and social networks. Very important topic when you're trying to understand this from policy points of view and trying to get scientists to collaborate. Uh, and what he's doing is taking a look at new university jobs and then linking it to Census Bureau data on a project that I worked on, which is called the LEHD data, which shows where those workers get jobs and what their starting earnings are and where they get, um, um, what, which industries they work for and what startups and so on. So all of those data can be generated and can be used automatically without a single principal investigator having to, having to fill out a survey or, um, or generate the information. Um, 
So that's a little bit too fast, but I just wanted to get across to you that a CISIP investigator can generate all kinds of information about regional and, and national economic impacts um, without um, using uh, star metrics type of data. Um, my colleague Stefano Batuzzi also used existing data to look at scientific networks and social and economic impacts, except looking at it backwards. So what he looked at was uh, he was at NIH, and uh, in 1975, NIH um, funded Lloyd Olds, and Lloyd Olds, Lloyd Olds discovered TNF-alpha. So TNF-alpha turned out to be this magic drug, and, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later, um, sorry, all kinds of uh, new drugs. These are almost like Lazarus-type drugs, people who had arthritis who can get up and walk again. So huge social impact huge economic impact in terms of the, the um, uh, knock-on to the economy. And what he did was a trace study to try and figure out how that happened. Because NIH would be saying, 1975, we picked up Lloyd Olds and see what happened. You know, then a miracle occurred and we had all these magic drugs. So what Stefano did and, and colleagues went in and tried to unpack that black box. Well, so part of it is, as you would expect with public funding, at least initially, the publications were all NIH-funded. After that, the proportion of NIH funding drops. That's the red line. And the blue line is private sector publications. So you can see the private sector jumps in. But what was really interesting about what Stefano did was he went back and looked at the networks of people that created that drug. It wasn't like Lloyd Olds got the money, sausage, and then a sausage appeared there was a whole set of networks of people where those ideas got transmitted, created, and adopted over a 30-year period, and the trace study maps that out. So here's another example done by Lee Fleming, um, who was at Harvard and is now at UC Berkeley. And what he, he was interested in doing was looking at the inventor networks and the links between Caltech and the inventive activity in Southern California. And so what you see here, the black squares are the Caltech principal investigators, and the uh, circles reflect the firms who are using patents that are generated by, firm, by, by principal investigators sitting on the bench who are funded by NSF and NIH. So uh, these, now you see that the, um, the black squares sit at the center of many of those networks. So the question is, let's drill down and take a look at some of those key principal investigators. And what old uh, Lee did was he went in and tried to figure out what were the pathways through which that, uh, those results occurred. Number one pathway was student graduation. Again, the creation Transmission and adoption of ideas is a human activity, tends to be regionally bound. That's, again, why Jason is interested in the geography as well. And so the way in which those ideas were transmitted was the students would get jobs in firms, and that's how the ideas got transmitted, because the students knew the work of the principal investigator and would disseminate it within the firms. The other one was for uh, inventors starting up businesses. That's a very uh, big characteristic in Silicon Valley as well. Or direct collaboration. 
that they would collaborate together on, on research topics. Uh, and that, that's how that happened. And that's just a little more detail on, uh, on that um, student mobility. So what are the closing comments? If you think collaboration is part of the way in which change occurs, and that way that, that uh, collaboration is an important transmitter of ideas from the creation uh, to the adoption, then you can think of different indicators that be, can be used that, that measure individual uh, uh, activity. Uh, and these, in principle, are the ideas that I was saying the program directors at foundations, both uh, public and private foundations, when they want to see who is a real idea changer, they look at something like uh, the video I just showed you. A very important factor is the new people, especially students who are entering the field. So capturing information, as we do in the Star Metrics program, on the students and the postdocs is absolutely critical. So um, back to the key ideas, and I, I know I'm conscious of my time. So the basic idea is write down what we think the theory of change is. Uh, I, I have, hope I've made the case that it's uh, networks of human beings. And that the outcome that we're interested in, and we heard this very clearly in the presentation right before lunch, is the creation, transmission, and adoption of ideas variously defined. And um, we want to leverage existing data and build in uh, an analytical community that has the knowledge and the tools uh, able to do this um, using 21st century technologies, so like the CISIF program. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Julia. Now, we'll have a slight intermission where we try to get Cameron's thing up. Oh, no, there we go. Off you go, Cameron. Thank you. So thank you very much for the invitation to speak. It's always a great pleasure to follow Julia. Um, of course, as an Australian, I have to point out that it's always a problem following a Kiwi um, because they take up more space than they're supposed to. But that's another story. <laughs> hey, watch it! <laughs> So I also want to talk about frameworks and systems, systems of thinking around impact. Um, and I will point out, these slides were made before this morning's session, so I'm going to have to caveat little on the way through. Um, I just want to emphasise first, because I'll make a case for it being important for you to be able to reuse outputs that you're free to reuse these outputs. Um, those people who are taking pictures of other people's slides are point out, of course, you're violating their copyright. But that's not the case here. So my talk, I've got three key points that I really want to try and get across. They are three key waypoints along the course of this talk. Um, so the first of these is that I don't have any answers. I've only really got questions, um, but I hope they're reasonably good questions. So I think we need to dig down to the bottom level of this and ask some questions about what is it actually that we value? Why do we do research? What is it for? Um, and what are the values as people and institutions we bring to that. For organisations and for people, what is the mission? And in a perfect world, your values would be what you used to inform the creation of a clear and articulate mission statement. Having made that mission statement, you would then draw on the various sources of data, various sources of information to determine how you would look at where, how you are performing against the mission, against the things that you feel or the institution or the community or the funder feels is important. The problem, of course, is that this link 
is something that we often lose and that in fact this goes around the other way. It's more important as a researcher to publish in a particular journal than it is to communicate to the audience of people who might effectively use my work. How many organisational strategies in the UK involve we will be a top ten institution? And why? What does that mean? So my second point is really to try and answer the question of why have we come to this point where our assessment is driving our mission rather than the other way around? And the problem, for the most part, this was explored quite a lot this morning, is the tradition has been very hard to measure the things that really are important to us in terms of why we do research. So the question is, can we measure better today than we were when the systems we've set up for research assessment were first created, or the culture that was created that drives our current systems? of research assessment. And I'm going to argue that we can, um, but of course I've created myself a little bit of a problem because now I'm going to say we can measure better, but I've also said that I don't know what it is we should measure. So I'm going to make an assertion, um, and that assertion is that we want to see scholarship used. We fund the process of scholarship and of research in the humanities and social sciences and the natural sciences for the purpose of having that scholarship make a change in the world for it to have an effect, for it to be used. And we want to see it used in the right places, whether that's in the context of education or in cultural work, whether it's in the context of future research, or in practical settings such as the clinic, or in enriching our culture, or in creating excitement and inducing a new generation of people to become engaged in the process of future scholarship. And we also want to see it used at the right time because we have a sophisticated understanding that research doesn't create a sausage factory out of which come outcomes, new drugs, new culture, new understanding of how our society works, new understanding of how the environment works. We understand that much research may never find an application, that we need a portfolio of this because we can't pick winners up front. So it's not just enough for scholarship to be used. We also need to make sure that it's reusable and so that we can configure our research and our communication and our dissemination so as to maximise the potential for it to be reused, the potential for it to have impact in the future. And what I draw from that is that if we're going to talk about what impact is, and while that's been a significant topic in the back channel, we haven't really addressed it from the stage yet. I want to suggest that one of the useful ways to frame the discussion my next slide's going to get me into trouble. But a useful way to think about what impact is, to frame it and to determine what are useful proxies that we might use to assess different forms of impact, is that impact fundamentally is reuse. It's reuse when research is applied. It's re reuse where research is commercialised, when it's used in education, when it becomes part of an engagement activity that draws more people into an institution, into a scholarly project, project or that creates new people who are engaged and have expertise. But also, and this is the critical point, and it was mentioned before, this also applies to the way we traditionally think as researchers about impact. It also applies to our traditional measures of thinking about our citations and indeed even journal impact factors as being part of the effect that we have. So in this conversation, when we use this frame to talk about impact, we're not talking about something which is separate from the way we have traditionally communicated and judged and validated research. 
we're talking about expanding the scope of the things we can measure from our traditional space of citations into other spaces, as Jason showed this morning, of impact on different communities out of impact via different mechanisms measured in different ways. Of course, remember my point one, I can't tell you which of those forms of impact, which of those forms of reuse are important to you. That is a decision you have to make for yourself. And the fact that somebody will give you a number is not an excuse to not make that decision. But we do have new ways to measure these kinds of things. And I want to show you a couple of those that I think might be slightly surprising. So one of the holy grails is research articles that have an impact, that make a difference, but for whatever reason do not yet or do not ever actually have very many citations. I'm going to use data from the PLOS article level metrics. This is, this is my one part um, of sort of advertising for what PLOS offers as a, as a publisher and a disseminator of research. And this is um, studies put together by Martin Fenner, um, and this largely relates to work at the University of Cape Town. So this is a graph. It shows the age of a paper published with PLOS from the University of Cape Town along the bottom axis. Along the left-hand axis, we have the number of views, the number of page views and PDF downloads of that paper from the PLOS website. And the size of the circle is the number of citations that Crossref tells us those papers have. And I want to pick on two papers that seem to have quite a lot of views because they conform to a pattern that we see quite often, that these are very often papers that are clinical guidelines, that are some form of discussion document, some form of policy document. Exactly those documents that researchers will often say, I can't be bothered writing this because it won't get very many citations, it won't be in the right journal and it won't contribute to my next promotion case, my next grant funding. And yet these are incredibly important and we see a signal of that importance even in a relatively crude number, like page views. This may seem like simply a popularity measure, but actually, and yes, papers with funny titles do do well on this metric, but they're relatively easy to pull out, and we consistently see these kinds of papers picking up. We can also look at classes of research, so we can look at all the research that relates to HIV from the University of Cape Town. They do quite a lot of that. Quite a lot of it's published with PLOS. And again, you can look at how that set of research performs against these different kinds of measures, bookmarks, citations, page views, PDF versus HTML, and you start getting some really interesting and rich data. Okay, so of course the question you really want to know is what's the top scorer, right? I've been cheating. I haven't showed you all of them. So there's two massive outliers. They're both quite highly cited, but they have many, many more views than you'd expect from that. And again... Big international collaborations around big health policy issues signal a proxy that these are having an impact beyond what you'd expect from the citations, and this is now something that we can measure, something that we can evidence in a way that was not possible when all we had were citations. So my point is there's lots of data Lots of different types of data. This is my report from Impact Story. Jason showed it to you this morning. Full disclosure, I'm a member of his board. Um, there is lots of this data out there, but actually I want to tell a story because narratives are also critically important. And again, I want to talk about this UCT data and I want to talk about Twitter data in particular. And Twitter's really interesting 
because Twitter, you can tell where people are coming from and who they are. So here's a breakdown geographically of the tweets around specific papers from that University of Cape Town set. And you can see the kind of standard pattern you expect. You get a lot of coverage, a lot of tweets in Europe, UK, United States. This is a South African paper. What's the missing audience? Here's another one. I'll give you a clue. So I was working down this list of papers looking for one that actually did have a significant number of tweets from um, Southern Africa. And it's this paper here, a paper which you might consider might important. We look at the PLOS article level metrics. This isn't a huge number of page views. It's not bad, but it's, but it's not a huge number of, of views in and of itself. It's not an obvious outlier on this graph, sitting there more or less developing the number of page views and citations you'd expect for an article of its age. But because this is Twitter, we can ask the question of who is engaging with this article. And the interactions that are occurring here are very relevant. These are interactions and tweets from crisis centres and gender diversity organisations in South Africa and in Cape Town. And what's interesting is they're all being driven by this one person who's a researcher in the Medical Research Council in Pretoria. And I can talk to her and ask her why she introduced this paper to these people. And so I did. And she replies that she works in dissemination. She's a key person. Actually, it turns out, if you want to reach sexual health researchers in South Africa, she is the person you need to be talking to. And if you want to talk to her, then you need to provide a paper that she can disseminate and which people can read. Because she disseminates to organisations that are outside our traditional academic community, that do work in the community, and funnily enough, don't have their own academic libraries. At the end of the day, this is a crisis centre in Cape Town where the research was done, saying this research is important enough to put on our website, it informs our practice, we want to communicate it to the women coming into our centre about what options they have. This, for me, is an example of impact. And this is social sciences. And the author of this paper at the University of Cape Town had no idea this connection had been made. But it can be tracked and evidenced and supported through the analysis of social media, through the analysis of the networks that make this research reach people. And so at the end of the day, actually, when you want to talk about reaching the right people, it's not about where you publish, but actually reaching those critical people. And that brings me on to my third point which is that if we actually want to create the impact for research, we need to think at the scale of network and we need to exploit the web to make it work properly. Because we're used to thinking about reaching scholars. We're used to thinking of networks at this scale, in some ways at the kind of scale that Julia talked about. But at the scale of the web, we need to think about the 400 million people on Twitter, the 900 million people on Facebook, because at that scale, we can make new kinds of connections. There are more people and more ways to connect with them and more opportunities to reach them and for them to take that research and use it in a way which is meaningful to them, whether they're in industry, in education, in a practitioner setting, in a cultural setting, or just interested. There are new kinds of outcomes that we can have if we make these connections. Say so most of them are not with our traditional audience and we don't actually even know who most of them are. So how can you maximise the reach 
of your research? How can you make sure you reach as many of the right people as possible when you don't know who they are? And the answer to that is for that research to be open. And I don't mean open in the sense of able to be freely read on the internet. I mean open in the sense of the open knowledge definition, the open source definition, the Budapest Declaration on Open Access, that it is usable and reusable so that people can translate and transfer and communicate and share out to the audiences that they know can use this research. So to summarise, three key points. The first one was that I can't tell you what your values are. The choices we make as institutions, funders, government and as individual researchers can only come from a non-objective assessment of what we think is important. The second point is that we do have new opportunities to measure many of the things that we care about and that if we choose carefully and we apply in an appropriate manner the question of what data and what information we can bring to, to the assessment process and if we use that evidence to support a strategic decision-making framework, then we can configure the system so the assessment process drives the wider impact. And then the third point is that we really need to think about this at exploiting the scale of the network infrastructure that we have today. And that fundamentally been setting as a default consideration that we release as freely reusable as possible research as rapidly and effectively as we can. And this is why, in my view, RCUK and the Wellcome Trust policy on open access is absolutely correct in focusing on reusability in legal terms as one of the highest priorities for the decision-making around the design of that policy. At the end of the day, we can't build a system for today on the basis of yesterday's systems, yesterday's truths, and what we could measure yesterday. We can maintain a system based on today's, but that's not going to last us very long. If we want to build for the future, we have to build on what's happening out in front. We need to look out in front and assess that and take control of it. Innovators don't follow markets. They build them. And that's the point that I want to leave you with, because I think we're, we face a critical decision in the UK today around how we decide what's important. Many of our institutions seem to believe that there's this sort of scala natura with Harvard at the top and some impoverished polytechnic somewhere at the bottom. And we're sort of, you know, two-thirds of the way up. And that's fine, but we're never going to have the money of Harvard. And the universities of China and Brazil, possibly Russia, possibly India, are going to be better resourced than ours very soon. We can focus on following other people's metrics, following other people's rankings, or we can make the choice to step outside of them, decide what's important for the research in this country, and actually take a leadership position about what's important. Leadership. Clues in the name. Thank you. Thanks very much, Cameron. And uh, finally, we have David. And, uh, yep, all ready to go. Thanks very much, Patrick. I can understand, Patrick, why you might encourage the audience not to boo. Because I see, I didn't know this, but I do see 
on your website about the LSE blog, Welcome to the Impact of Social Sciences Project. We are working on a multi-year project funded by the Higher Education Funding Council for England <laughs> that aims to demonstrate how academic research in the social sciences achieves public policy impacts. Well, we are committed to uh, understanding uh, more about impact, and that's why we've funded uh, Patrick, and uh, no doubt uh, I'm going to talk now about what we're doing at the moment. No doubt we'll do it better next time, uh, thanks to Patrick. And if we don't, I'll want the money back, Patrick. Uh, I'd also, since I can't resist making this shot, our exercise, both in the, in the uh, review and assessment of academic outputs, traditional academic outputs typically, though not necessarily publications, and in the assessment that we're making of impact, is based on peer review or expert review or judgment. I've always wanted a great example of why that was necessary, and Julia has given it to me because there they were in that little TED clip. First of all, the leader dancing, then the next one, then the next one, till they were all joining in. In metric sense, it was brilliant. What it needed was somebody who understands social behavior but is not involved in that group. Indeed, a peer reviewer to say, you're a bunch of idiots. You're making fools of yourself. Uh, and challenge, constructive challenge, rather than uh, just unthinking use of metrics, I think is important. I think Cameron's made the same uh, point very much in analyzing where the impact arose uh, from that paper and trying to trace through the pathways to impact. Uh, one of our objectives is to be, to have better knowledge about the way the impact arises, and both Julian and Cameron have talked about that. But let me just have a word about what we are doing. I mean, what is research for? Cameron started off, he, he pinched my question, we didn't communicate. Uh, however, I have a slightly different take on that, because of course most of the research in this country is publicly funded. In fact, mostly directly publicly funded, a huge amount also through the charities which uh, mostly make their money from uh, public donations, uh, but, but it's not technically public funding. So I think what, uh, what the public funder, the government, the taxpayer thinks research is for is something that's important, which Cameron uh, didn't tackle. And if there's a, a gap, then I think there's a problem. And I know you think that, too, because I read the tweets this morning and it was clear that one of the focuses was how do we convince uh, the government as funder. And since that's uh, my key job, I'm quite interested in it. What does the government want? Now, you'd think it was something fairly instrumental. Uh, their plan for growth says, quite bluntly, the overriding priority of this government is to return the UK economy to balance sustainable growth. And uh, we certainly all want the UK recovery to uh, to uh, go well, because otherwise there won't be any money to, uh, to fund us. And it goes on to say higher education, could have said higher education and uh, research is central to growth. So the government has a wholly instrumental view. Except, of course, that most of the investments it's making are long-term investments. Most of the money that, uh, most of the, uh, the money that comes either through uh, the university budget, uh, which is, is mine and the other funding councils, or the research council's budget is aimed at research that will have no major impact 
in a very short period, certainly in the period of the life of government. It's storing up new knowledge for future impact. And I've got to say, I fundamentally uh, disagreed with Julia when she said, we don't want to wait for measures of the impact for research. My job is to convince the government that we're investing for the long term in research. We are not spending our research bucks to create jobs over the next two years. We're creating... We're, we're spending our research bucks to transform our society in the years to come. You said we don't want to wait. I want to tell the government you've got to wait, that investing in the long term is right. So I absolutely, fundamentally no, I just, disagree you're with that. Wrong. I never said that. You said you don't want governments to have to wait. No. I wrote it down. I wrote it down, Julia. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it's as simple as that. I want to fund... Now, the government wants to do it. It does that through the two funding sources. And indeed, there was the interesting example of Andre Geim, our Nobel Prize winner, uh, last week, criticising the government for not funding enough in graphene, uh, 50 million, which I thought was, wasn't bad in these straightened times, uh, not funding enough. And of course, he said, business doesn't understand what I'm doing because I'm going to have incredibly long-term impact. That is what we are about. That is where the government is putting its money into long-term research, do we want to convince it that it's doing the right thing? I, I do, and I therefore want to look back at investments that were made up to 20 years ago and determine, did that transform our society? Can we provide evidence to government that investment was worthwhile? Now, this is articulated, this is actually our uh, statement of the National Policy for Research, but you find similar ones in the Research Council and elsewhere. Our strategic aim is to develop and sustain a dynamic and internationally competitive research sector, so competitive with the world, world-leading, that makes a major contribution to economic prosperity, yes, national well-being, yes, and the expansion and dissemination of knowledge. A major contribution uh, to those things, and that, that's taken forward. Uh, we are, of course, big in terms of the kind of short-term economic impact that Julia's system looks at so well, uh, the seventh largest export industry, I won't dwell on the statistics because you'll, you'll know all about them. Uh, there, there are our statistics about our success, and you'll notice that there are uh, citations. Again, the development of new knowledge. Uh, doctoral students, uh, well, that's laying down for our, our research base for the future. So what are we trying to do in research? We're trying to develop new knowledge, which indeed will contribute to society. No ducking any of that, uh, but in the long term. And of course, we hope that right now we're harvesting the results of past investment and it's justified going further. Uh, we have got good infrastructure in this country. The World Economic Forum Global Competitors Rankings put us second for university business uh, collaboration and so on. So we're in a strong position, but we've got to persuade the government. Now, we're persuading the government in a context of selective funding. And I know that not everybody is entirely comfortable with it, but if you look at over the last 20 years as we've been more and more selective about our funding, identifying uh, the best work, uh, in our case, retrospectively, and the research councils making judgments about what will be the future best work, uh, the quality of UK research as measured uh, against others in the world has uh, gone up and up. So selective funding has worked for us and uh, it's with us. Uh, our government believes that uh, rewarding good performance 
will lead uh, to success in the future. So what about assessing impact? First of all, why are we... Oh, what is it? What is it? I've just a little bit of a problem with Cameron looking at interactions between academics until he got to the bit where somebody outside, and what a fantastic example that was from South Africa, was looking at the information. To me, that wasn't impact. I'm very comfortable with the use of academic impact within, within the academy, but what we're, I don't think that will persuade government. I really don't. I think what we're about is identifying successes outside. It's why I'm slightly uncomfortable with the star metrics approach, which gives a great understanding of how we go about research. If we were building a bomb, we'd want to understand the physics. We'd want to understand the chemistry. We'd want to know where we got the raw materials from. We'd want to know what jobs were created by making the raw materials. But we'd rather like to know what happened when the bomb went off. And I think the star metrics is in very early stages yet of identifying uh, quantitative evidence in uh, society. And I would challenge whether some of the metrics that Julia mentioned, without some kind of expert judgment being interposed, uh, can uh, do more than tease out uh, the impact of research in really very well-defined uh, projects, such indeed as the drug example uh, that she, she gave. So my impact agenda is uh, to make it explicit to the government and wider society that investment research was worthwhile, to recognize as excellence not only that work that is done for long-term gain, but also more applied work for short-term gain. Andre Gimes said last week that academics shouldn't be forced to do applied research. And I thought, he's dead right. They shouldn't be forced. Those who are brilliant at developing new knowledge should be given the chance and the funding to do so. But actually, there's quite a lot of academics who want to do applied research, and the nation needs that work done, and we need to celebrate uh, that also. Uh, obviously, we want to encourage institutions to achieve the full potential of their uh, research. And that's another thing where I'm slightly nervous with the star metrics, which looks at things from a researcher-centric position, as indeed, at the heart of it, Julia said, research is done by scientists, actually, uh, by others as, as well. But actually, I think that the the impact that research makes on society doesn't just come from researchers or groups of researchers. I think institutions in working together, in being engaged with society, go add value beyond that which is just given by academics. I think if we want to act as if our uh, universities are just collections of academics uh, or researchers with no added value, I think we're depriving ourselves of a major uh, advantage we have in, in that universities as institutions are major economic actors in our country and also at the heart of the social fabric of the nation as well. So how do we define uh, the REF uh, impact in terms of the research assessment exercise? I'm doing the research excellence framework. And it's an inclusive definition intended to be utterly inclusive so that we captured contribution that research made to society of any kind, any effect on change or benefit to the economy, society, culture, public policy. I don't want to read it, all the activity, attitude, awareness. If there's an impact on society, we want to capture it. We put people in darkened room for days to try and be inclusive about this. It doesn't exclude impacts uh, on, the, um, on teaching. 
But that's only because we fund teaching through a different stream. There's nothing wrong with impacts on teaching, but the research funding is not to fund teaching. It's to fund uh, uh, the development of new knowledge and the contribution that new knowledge makes to society. Uh, we've tried codifying that economic, commercial, public policy and services and so on, and uh, I won't bother dwelling on the way that we've teased these things out to help people in universities look at the research they've done over 20 years and provide case studies of the contribution that's made to society. And again, I've got a number of slides here which you can, uh, you can look at uh, from the presentation about how our different disciplinary groups, uh, health and life sciences, physical sciences, social sciences, and uh, arts and humanities look differently on the concept of impact. Because I think, and again, this is the difference between uh, the way we do things and some others, we're interested in capturing what everyone in the academy does. I'm a little bit nervous, actually, about that statement that one of you made that surely scientists can, uh, can say what they've done. Well, actually, I think you've got to scientists and humanities people in social sciences looking at the way that the academy relates to society. I think looking at things in silos is bad, but in the exercise we're doing where we're not trying to compare the impact of one discipline against another, but look at how some institutions have been more successful in doing research that led to a contribution to society than others in comparing the impact within the discipline uh, of one institution against another. Again, not individual scientists, because many of our researchers are not engaged in work that even over these time scales will lead to a contribution to society, and that's, in my view, right, uh, and therefore we should look at the portfolio of work at an institution. Now, that's not to denigrate different ways of doing it. They're doing different things to answer different questions. We do need to understand much better the way by which impact arises, and Julia's scheme will help us tremendously in that. Uh, Cameron and all these wonderful new social network methods may help us, although there's still quite a lot of work to be done uh, I think, to identify how the uh, considerable investment and effort is justified. But in my case, I want to persuade the government on the basis of a series of stunning and compelling case studies that investment over the last uh, 30 years uh, has benefited the country and the world. That's a different question to the one that others are asking, but it's the question in my job that I have uh, to answer or the government has asked me uh, to provide evidence for. And I think it's entirely complementary with more refined ways of looping at impact, which may help us in our understanding of the future. Uh, I th personally think the evidence we'll have from case studies about the way that a contribution to society has arrived will be complementary uh, to some of the metric-based approaches uh, that we've held about. So I think it is important that we know uh, how the bomb went off, but also uh, where the damage was. Now, can I just skip to what we're doing. And it is a challenge, I know, to expect people to write things, although not quite, in my view, as big a challenge as uh, Julia suggests. I think if uh, all of our academics, scientists, social scientists, humanities or arts colleagues can't capture in a few words what they've done, uh, there's something wrong, actually, the world. We've all got, I think, to be reasonably literate about what we do, and we've all got to be prepared to provide evidence. Uh, to that end, we're asking for a number of case studies. Each case study is a stunning length of uh, four pages. Uh, the challenging thing is providing 
the evidence of the contribution to society ties back to the research that's done. And it's also quite challenging, given that universities haven't been asked to do that. Uh, they haven't been collecting the evidence for the last 20 years. Uh, digging down is difficult. So pro providing case studies at one level is trivial, writing four pages. At another level involves an enormous amount of work, which I know universities are heavily engaged in now. Uh, and we also want universities to talk in their impact template about their approach to generating impact. This is at an entirely different level to uh, either of the two previous speakers who are drilling down. I think you need to do both. You will not persuade government by drilling down. They just don't work like that. Uh, you may say that you will not always persuade them with case studies also. Indeed, uh, often you will in fact, but you won't always. So I think we've got to have multifarious ways of tackling this issue, but always being clear what our objective is, uh, which in my case is to, uh, first of all, uh, encourage every possible contribution to society from the best and world-leading research, and secondly, uh, to persuade the government to fund that. Now, uh, can I just finish off with uh, the case studies? The REF defini definition of impact is up there. The timescales I've talked about, uh, 20 years of underpinning research or, or so, uh, but impacts that have arisen in the last uh, six years. But they must be underpinned by excellent research. That's a fundamental principle here because I started off, and I'm going to finish by saying, the government's aim is to fund the development of new knowledge in ways that's acknowledged as world-leading. So we're not interested, although it's a good thing, in impact that has arisen from research, for example, which was not rigorous. It's a good thing, but it doesn't meet our question, which is uh, to fund excellent research. Uh, so we've thought through the criteria to end up with a name of persuading the government that investing in us is worthwhile both in terms of developing new knowledge and uh, that in itself is, is a good and part of our responsibility, I think, uh, as human beings to understand the world around us, but that the development of that new knowledge is, uh, results in some kind of transformation for our society and, what's more, that that is a just and wise use of taxpayers' money. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, David. And uh, now we go to uh, queries and questions, and uh, we'll follow the same uh, format as before. So uh, if you'd like to ask a question, yep, there's one over there. Um, gentleman over there. Anybody else like to ask a question? And the uh, lady next door, too. And it would be helpful if you could just say who you were. I don't know if it, ah, there we go. Um, I don't know if any of you have anything to say or did say something about the bit that fascinates me, that very often it's not just the discovery that leads to impact, but the social response. And 
The obvious example is text message, which was clearly a very trivial thing to the mobile providers, and it's been the social response to the technological innovation that has created the enormous impact and arguably led, you know, been a step along the way to, to Twitter and things like that. So where does social response fit in and how can we uh, get an analytical handle on that? Okay, thanks very much, Nick. And... Uh... I'm Jo Lakey from the Institute of Education. My question, I think, is for Cameron. Um, you talked about an example where the academic who produced the research wasn't aware of the impact that it had had. Um, and obviously, when we're preparing our impact submission for the REF, we have to evidence it. Um, and I just wondered if you could expand a little bit about how we start systematically collecting data on evidence for impact when academics may not be aware that it's actually occurred. Thank you. Any more questions? We're really, really keen. Yes, this lady down here. Uh, Paula Nee from Technopolis. I just wanted to make a comment related to Cameron's example as well. You stressed the need and the importance of open access, but the other important point in that example you gave was that the output was accessible to those people. So there's something about the quality and the style of the output that makes it accessible to users and potential users. Great. Well, let's go with those questions. Um, Julia, do you want to say anything about uh, social response? And, uh... um, I'm not really qualified to talk about that. Um, the, I, I do know there's a lot of analysis of that in the CISIP community, but uh, I'll leave that to Cameron to talk about. Great. Okay. No pressure, then. Um, so, so actually, it's interesting the, the notion of, of social response. I mean, one of, if I could reframe one of the criticisms that was raised this morning around social media and other online um, tracking processes, the criticism that I often hear is that it me only measures the social response, um, as opposed to measuring some sort of um, etheric sense of the quality or importance of, of the original research. So, I think um, Jason really made this point this morning, I think, and he's, he, he makes it well in a lot of his writing as well, that we need to understand and deconvolute aspects of the social response from the idea transmission and how that evolves into from an output to an outcome. And I think it's a really interesting research question. Um, I think we have a greater opportunity with these kinds of online um, environments today to track and measure that social response than we have ever had before. Um, but we've got a lot of work to do to make it, to make it work well. Um, and I think there's a lot of very important social sciences work to be done um, in that space. In terms of the question of <coughs> how institutions, I mean, particularly institutions building up impact statements for the REF, um, would be interested in this, I would re really strongly recommend engaging with some of the tools um, that you heard about this morning. Um, I can, I'm very happy to talk to people about exactly how I surfaced that story, but it was exactly as I said. I had this list of papers, I put them into a bunch of tools, and I was going down this list that I noticed that South Africa was missing from the geographical spread of those. And then I suddenly came across this one where it was. I thought, well, I'll dive into that and look at what the, look, look at what the story here is. Um, so that's, that's the process. It was actually digging into the data, looking at the data and seeing what stories arose, arose from the data. And that data is available um, in 
some cases it doesn't go back 20 years though for obvious reasons. Um, and I think the point about accessibility is, is um, right on the money. Um, the critical question is how do you communicate effectively to the community of practice that will use the research? A question was raised earlier this morning by someone about social sciences not being, social sciences outputs not often being accessible to um, you know, potential users in the public service. And I think we have to ask ourselves some very serious questions about given resource limitations, you know, I absolutely believe, and I'm sure this will come up in the next session, um, costs of dissemination and effective communication are part of the costs of research. But there's limited resources and we have to make choices about how most effectively to communicate the research. What I'd like to think is that we can move over the next 10 years to a world where a researcher might appropriately and thoughtfully make the decision not to publish a paper and to communicate in a different way and for that to be approved of and, and seen as a good thing in terms of all the different levels of assessment for them. And that includes, and a very important part of it, and Alice Bell's written quite a lot on this, it, inc it includes the way in which we, can, we write our research communications. Um, the principle of openness is to make things available and the principle of to extend that, we need to write accessibly so that these people who we don't know might use our research stand a good chance of understanding it. Great. David, can can I, uh, first of all, pick up the point about social response? Here's a great example of a social response. The LSE Impact blog, who's, who's tweeting that here? Wave your hand. Now, it quotes me as saying, Sweeney starts by asking what the government wants from higher ed and research. Government has a wholly instrumental view of research. I thought I was trying to say that you might have thought that from the growth statement, but from the practices of government and from the other stuff, it's exactly the opposite. Now, if that is retweeted, which thankfully it hasn't been yet, I've seen, everybody will think I said something that was the opposite to what I was trying to say. I, I, I know the feeling. No, I didn't. So, you so, argued with me. <laughs> I quoted you, I quoted you. You didn't like it. Anyway, so the, the point, I, I think the answer to Nick's point is that, I, and indeed to several other tweets, which is how do you measure these things, we're not trying to measure everything. We're asking for a degree of evidence which will sometimes be quantitative, which will generally not be quantitative in my, in my view, it certainly wasn't when we did a pilot exercise, it certainly wasn't when they've just done a pilot exercise in Australia, and the expert judgment of panels looking at reach and significance, which I didn't dwell on in, in, this, in this session, uh, the expert judgment of those who are both practitioners, academics, and who are uh, research users will form a judgment. Uh, in our experience, in a, two pilots now, that hasn't proved impossible, but scaling it up to cover all disciplines, it may be more difficult. Now, that point about collecting evidence, it is difficult, uh, and how, why should, how can academics do it with, with some difficulty at the moment? But if the government is giving, uh, through me, one and a half billion a year, so that's, uh, what's that, six times uh, that, uh, 10 billion over a, a ref period, through the research councils, roughly the same again, that's a lot of money in government terms, however you look at it. In the past, Universities have taken the money, they've spent it, and Julia is going to uh, uh, help us understand exactly how we've spent that, and that will uh, be beneficial, uh, helpful. But they haven't been responsible for the fruits of uh, their research. 
If I was a taxpayer, oh no, I am, I would think that if I was giving somebody that sum of money, it was reasonable to expect them to take a degree of responsibility for what happened, for what happened beyond just spending it. And I only said a degree because, of course, universities don't create impact, academics don't create impact. It's the engagement of academics and universities with society that leads to impact. So this is not just a university problem, but it is, I'm afraid, in my view, a problem that with that level of public investment universities have to take responsibility for. First time round, it's really difficult. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but we are actually only asking for one case study per ac 10 academics. How many are there in your team, Patrick? Well, uh, you're asking for 5,000 case studies, aren't you? Yeah, across, across 5,000 case studies, across 50,000 academics who will submit getting on for 200,000 uh, traditional outputs. So I'm not sure. How many, come on, add to the question, well, Patrick. How many people are in your group? Well, it's not a difficult question. There's probably about six in the relevant bit of... Uh, so one case study. One case study, Patrick, for your group. And since when has piling 5,000 case studies, you know, influenced government? And say, <laughs> since you say we're not trying to measure everything, aren't most people complaining that you're not trying to measure anything? Uh, the, you're not measuring anything objectively, no, you're I just did, judging. I never, said, I never said we're assessing, we're not, we're not measuring, I agree with that. But, and indeed, I'm sure that very, very... Few of those case studies will actually ever cross the government's ken. But do we want to deprive colleagues from all disciplines of the chance to do it? Actually, we ask them, do you all want to participate or shall we only choose the easy ones? They said, we all want to be in this because we all think what we're doing is important, provided you capture impact in a way that's sympathetic to our, our um, discipline, we want to take part. And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want to give everyone in the academy, and as I say, we're only expecting uh, roughly one case study from every 10, so why wouldn't everybody have the opportunity and a reasonable fraction take that opportunity? So, so let me jump in here. Um, uh, several things. One is, um, at least in, uh, and I hate to come at this from a United States background, but that is all that uh, I currently have the information about, but Certainly in the United States, there's been a really big concern about the reporting burden on the scientific community, that it takes um, the most recent federal demonstration partnership study said 40% of a researcher's time is spent in reporting. And that means that's time that they're not doing science. So there's a question about the value added. Um, and then the concern, of course, is, is whether the um, people pay attention to what is generated. Um, and I know that, and I don't want to dismiss the importance of peer review. Peer review is extremely important, and, and I think in our roadmap we say it's the gold standard. Um, but at the end of the day, there are, peer review tends to be very conservative, and again, there's a, a lot of literature with the concerns of the peer review process which is that it tends to be a little bit discriminatory. It tends to be regionally biased. And citations um, are more discriminatory. Indeed. So citations, which same problem. We, which is why we don't use them. Right. So well, I'm on board with that. Um, so, so, so there's a question of the value added of different processes. And um, 
then there's the question of the burden associated with, with sure, responding. Sure. I so, can take, take those on. First of all, oh, I, sorry, David. So, so can we, yeah. no, no, can just take Julia's point and then we'll go yeah, to I'll, I'll be very quick. I, I've been in universities for 20 years. I think people pay attention to the results of the REE. Uh, it seems to be the predominant topic of discussion. In the UK is that a function of the quality of the work or the $10 billion? It's the reputation that universities derive from it and the money. It's, it's clearly the most important thing other than the research grant process in this country. Also, the research grant process at the cheapest costs about 4% in administration terms of the, uh, the, the budget. You can make it a bit higher if you want. Uh, we got Pricewaterhouse to go into an independent assessment of the cost of the last research assessment exercise, including visiting 21 universities and sampling, uh, asking them about how much they put in. It cost between a quarter and one half percent of the research budget, about a tenth as much of the grant process. Yes, it is a burden. Uh, we've persistently suggested ways of trimming back the burden of the REF, and universities have consistently resisted that because they like the fine detail, the granularity there is in the system. So, uh, although everybody hates it, they don't want to change it. Isn't that strange? Right. Some more questions from the floor? Yep. Thank you very much. My name's Alan Tomlinson, University of Brighton. I've got two questions to David. Uh, one is probably about what was maybe talked about by all your experts in dark rooms. Uh, and <laughs> possibly the second one is too. The first question is, what was there much discussion and is there a view emerging anywhere that's not in the explicit documentation that you word us through about, say, the contribution in a case study of single individuals as opposed to clusters and groups? And the second question is about how relevant to the notion of a sustainable case study is the idea of going forward, not just reporting back. Okay. Uh, well, we're Thank, thanks, David. We'll accumulate a few questions. Any more questions? Yep, down here. <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> yeah, that one is. Oh, yeah, there it is. You've got to go. Um, hi, I'm Emily Wilson from the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton. Um, I just wondered, this is a question for, for all the panel, really. Would it help to talk about when research doesn't have an impact? Um, there's a, a quite an interesting example um, of a Dutch researcher who did some, um, some studies on landslides in Uganda a few years back, published it in a highly rated uh, scientific journal, um, got whatever credits he needed to get as a researcher. I'm not a researcher, so um, I should clarify. Um, and a few years later, the landslides happened, lots of people died, um, because no one knew about his research because it was published in a nice, eminent scientific journal. Um, so he did what he was supposed to do as a researcher but frankly from the point of view of us who aren't researchers um, I think he failed really as a scientist and he actually admits to that in, in a video um, later on. Unfortunately I'm technologically challenged today so I would have tweeted the link to this particular video. Um, I'm sure those who work in international development will be familiar with it but I'm just wondering would that be one approach to come to this? Well, when is our research not having an impact? When is it um, quite frankly, not much use to anyone other than people who read the journal article. Thanks. And one final question. Yep, over here. Joel, behind you. Um, 
Um, I'm Fang Longxu from the LSE Asian Research Center. From Asian Research Center. Okay. Um, you have mentioned about the publication and peer-reviewed journal and the citation. So my question is about SSCI, Social Science Citation Index. Um, how do you think about I mean, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, like um, if your um, article published in a peer-reviewed journal and with a SSCI, the um, yeah, the the index and um, the number would be a better valued. Um, how do you think about this SSCI the measurement? Okay, thanks. Okay, um, David. Well, uh, the single researcher thing, yes, you'll read, if you read our documentation, it says that case studies may be based on the work of a single researcher. Uh, if it's just a single researcher puffing uh, her or his own research, that probably won't work. But in the pilot we did, uh, there were case studies that were very successful based on individuals. There were also case studies that weren't uh, successful. So that's absolutely fine. Uh, the, now, we're absolutely committed in our exercise to not predicting the impact of research. And indeed, so are the research councils. They're looking for the ways in which impact might arise, but not predicting the impact that will arise from research grants. Because uh, we just, neither of us think that you can predict the impact from research. So I, I fully accept it's a criticism uh, that people make of our exercise that it's retrospective. I think it's reasonable that roughly half our money gets given on the basis of past performance, which is what uh, my system is, and roughly half of the money gets given uh, on uh, the experts' view, the, peer, uh, the panel, grant panel members' view of what will be excellent research in the future. I think that's a reasonable uh, balance, uh, but there's not actually much evidence for that contention I've just made. In terms of, uh, I, I think, uh, as when we're talking about impact in terms of contribution to society, it's best ex uh, expunging citations from the discussion altogether. Not, there are other good reasons for using citations, but not in my view when it comes to impact. I think some of the stuff that Cameron des uh, described is likely to be far more fruitful than uh, traditional citation analysis. Uh, so, so I'm going to take issue with the notion that an individual researcher uh, can describe the impact of their research, that uh, the process is far too complex, and did I mention too long, for an individual researcher to be able to um, capture the ways in which their knowledge gets um, disseminated. Uh, and I, the, I sit on the German Wissenschaftsrat for major research infrastructures, and so they're putting in 200 million, 300 million euro projects. And the scientists can tell you brilliantly what the quality of their science is but they find it extraordinarily difficult to talk through what they expect the long-term results to be. And, you know, when you're asking for funding or refunding, I'm an economist, I believe in incentives, and the incentives are, 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 are somewhat distorted. So that's one point I would make, the, the validity of building solely on a system that relies on self-reporting. The second uh, challenge is that anyone who has studied the impact of R&D investments 
will tell you that the reason for government to invest in R&D, research and development, is that the private return to R&D investment should be low. If there's a high return, if there is consistently a high impact, then there is no reason for the government to be intervening because the private sector ought to be intervening. A very large reason, and this goes back to the Uganda comment, very large reason for the, uh, for the government to invest in science is that it's risky. There are a lot of failures. And the important thing is to get the information about that failures out. And in essence, it tells the private sector, here's a problem, here's a hole that you don't want to drill in. So the social return to research should be way higher than the private return. So for, there are many reasons to um, think that a self, there, there is value, obviously, in self-reporting, but relying on that solely is, is going to be um, not as robust a system as others. Um, so, so, I'll be, so I'll be quick. I think in terms of sustainability, I think I, I'm going to disagree slightly with, slightly with Julia in that I think there, it is reasonable to expect researchers today to put the kind of mechanisms and instruments in place that will help them in the future track all of these different forms of impact. And we do have impact, use, reuse, citation, um, and that we do also need to expand the culture of linking and citation and attribution to make that work. So policymakers and government could do a lot better job of citing um, the research that supports you know, policy developments, for instance, particularly in government. Um, and that would help us make a case about how our research is having an impact on their policymaking. Um, I think this question of identifying the, the negatives um, is, a, is a great example um, where the communication hasn't been effective. We need to understand that and we need to start thinking about how we can do that better. Um, Chad Gaffield, um, who's the chief executive of the Canadian Social Sciences um, Research Council also had another example of research. He was funding a lot of research into the, um, the history and um, interactions of Islam with, the, um, with other cultures from the 12th to the 19th century um, on the 10th of September 2001. And up until that day, that research was not viewed as having a very high impact. The following day, it suddenly looked very, very important. So those, the, having the research in place to deal with the externalities, whether they're environment, environmental, cultural, things that we can't predict is also very important. Um, so that's also another sort of example, same thing. How can we learn better from what we've done in the past? How can we communicate more effectively? And how can we communicate... How can we judge and assess the effectiveness of our communication um, to make sure that we do it as well as we can in the future. Thank you very much, Cameron. And thank you to all the speakers. Uh, thank you. I hope you'll join with me. In, uh, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.